morning, GBC. Good to be with you this morning. I'm excited to continue our series on the, uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in honor of 4th of July, I decided to get some, some red, white, and blue for you. Is that, hopefully that made you laugh at home, waiting for the laughter to die down so you can pay attention to me. All right, we'll keep going. Uh, if you have a Bible handy, go ahead and start turning to Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at uh, verses 31, the end of that chapter, and then the first 11 verses of chapter 5. If you remember last week, Josh preached on Jesus coming to his hometown of Nazareth, uh, reading a scroll from Isaiah 61 and announcing that the scripture had been fulfilled. So Jesus was starting his, his ministry by saying that he had come to bring liberty and freedom to the poor, the oppressed, the captives, that he was going to give sight to the blind. And then if you remember, the, the hometown crowd at first, they reacted with astonishment. They couldn't believe the types of things he was teaching. But that quickly turned to anger when Jesus uh, clarified that this freedom, this message, was for everyone to hear, to both Jews and Gentiles, meaning, meaning non-Jewish people. The reaction is so bad that they're prepared to kill this person that they've known their entire life, he's in his hometown, uh, by throwing him off a cliff. Now, I know I've had some sermons and some youth lessons in my life that haven't been the greatest, but as far as I know, no one was plotting my demise after it was over. I'm not, I'm not saying that Jesus preached a bad message is why they're trying to, to kill him. The people were simply unwilling to hear the truth that he was speaking to them. So I hope this morning that we're all ready to hear the truth of Jesus's message. This week's passage picks up probably just a week later than where we left off. This is the next Sabbath, most likely, uh, where Jesus is now preaching in Capernaum. We're gonna see a much different reaction and response to Jesus's uh, authority of teaching in this passage though. So I wanna talk about this morning, how Jesus's authority plays out in three different ways and what we can learn from that. So the first way is Jesus's authority in teaching and rebuking. The second is Jesus's authority in his mission. And third is Jesus's authority in calling disciples. Let's go ahead and read all of Luke 4, 31 through 5, 11 to start. It says, and he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. 
Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let, your net, and, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they, be, they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. All right, well, let's start by talking about Jesus' authority in teaching and rebuking. So Jesus has, has left Nazareth from the week before. He's headed down to Capernaum, a, a town that's not too far from Nazareth. And again, we see him enter a synagogue and begin to teach on the Sabbath. This would be a common practice in Jesus' ministry to go to a town and, and teach at the synagogue. It's also important to note that this is the Sabbath because Jesus performs a miracle uh, on this day. Later in Jesus' life, when his popularity and, and, and notoriety has grown, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders and teachers of the day, will try to catch Jesus in a trap for breaking the Sabbath by, by doing work. In this case, the work being miraculous healings and exorcism of demons. Uh, and so from the outset of his ministry, Jesus is demonstrating how the heart of God has been mis misconstrued to man's own interpretation. So as Jesus teaches, once again, the people are astonished at his teaching, and it's pointed out that his word carries authority. Now, when we think of authority in someone's words, we might think of command with which they speak, like the power coming out of them. Uh, maybe you think of a, a deep baritone voice like James Earl Jones or uh, someone who uses lots of pounding a fist and raising their volume when they speak. That, that's speaking with authority. Well, that, that's not what this is, is saying, although, I don't know, for all we know, Jesus had a smooth, velvety voice. There's no way to tell. But when rabbis and teachers would speak in this culture, they would frequently mention who they had learned from. It was almost like this name-dropping competition. So the authority they carried was due to who had passed on teachings to them. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he, he even drops later on that he was trained by Gamaliel, uh, who was this incredible Old Testament uh, scholar that was teaching Paul as he was coming up, training to be a Pharisee. Later, Paul would make sure in his letters that people knew he was speaking with the authority of Christ because he'd been ministered to by the Holy Spirit uh, and been called an apostle of Christ. He knew what he needed to know about Jesus, even though he wasn't a follower of Jesus when he was alive. So this could be like me saying, as a graduate of Corbin University, who studied under Dr. Troll, Dr. Anderson, and Dr. Derrickson, as well as received my master's degree from Gateway Seminary under the tutelage of Dr. Kuykendall, I want to speak to you, dot, 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 and then I would start teaching whatever I'm going to do. Uh, now, those things are true, and I'm grateful for those men for guiding me, but I'm guessing that those accolades don't mean a lot to you right now, because you probably don't know who those guys are. Plus, it would probably get annoying if every time someone stood up to speak, they had to drop knowledge on who it was that gave them the knowledge they're now imparting to you. And the thing about Jesus is, though, is that he didn't have a resume of great teachers to throw down. He was just a carpenter from a podunk small town. What Jesus spoke, though, when he did speak, he carried with him the authority of God the Father. 
Now, this is radical for people to hear. This, this is why so much of Jesus' teaching is explaining how the law has been taught to them and, and, and has had like this legalistic checklist added to it uh, to earn God's favor, rather than a way to, to recognize God's holiness, our sinfulness, and our need for a Savior. So the basis of Jesus' authority is different than anything the world had seen in his teaching, but it also carries out into his miracles. Uh, while at the synagogue, Jesus casts out a, a demon uh, that's inside a man. What's ironic is that the people Jesus grew up with his whole life in Nazareth just a week ago didn't recognize who Jesus is when he explains he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He's the Messiah, but now a demon, a fallen angel, an enemy of God knows exactly who Jesus is. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son. He's the Holy One of God. The Son of God is, is how this could be translated here. Have you had uh, times in your life when you finally realized who Jesus like really is? Maybe it's the first time you decided to, to give your life to Christ and to follow Him, to repent of your sins, to, to turn your life around. Maybe it's happened after you've been a, a Christian for a long time in your life. You've had a perception of who Jesus is, of uh, the guy who died on the cross for you, who will always love you, who probably is going to give you what you ask if you pray for it, but then something happens, you get a fuller picture, a fuller realization of who Jesus actually is. Uh, I've shared about in the past about when I truly understood the sovereignty of Christ, that he's always in control, even when I don't see things, uh, see how things are working out, or that, that he has a plan for something that, that seems like it's not going right. When my, my grandfather died after many years of, of treatment for prostate cancer, I was upset, but didn't realize that Jesus had been using that situation all along to ultimately draw my cousin to him to repent and become a follower of him. Uh, and so ever since that time, even though I was upset then and, and, and that was a painful process, I now see tragedies, hurts, trials in a completely different light and seek to understand how Jesus can use them for a good that I may not see. The people of Nazareth missed recognizing who Jesus was. The demon knows who Jesus is and uh, apparently is terrified of it. And then the people of Capernaum are starting to realize there's something different about Jesus. It says that, that Jesus rebukes the demon, literally uses the authority of his word to cast out the demon. Naturally, the, the people seeing this miracle take place on, on top of the authority that Jesus was already teaching with begins to make his fame and popularity spread throughout the region. So later that day, Jesus goes to Simon's house. Now this is the same Simon who will become Simon Peter, who will just be known as Peter, the lead disciple of Jesus. And we learn that, that Simon is married as Jesus goes to uh, Peter's mother-in-law, or goes to see Peter's mother-in-law. Um, and we see that he cast out, just using his words, the authority of his words, he rebukes a fever out of his mother-in-law. She's immediately healed, and at once she begins to serve everyone in the house. What she's modeling for us is the type of response we are to have when we encounter Jesus and are changed by him. She doesn't wait to make sure that she understands everything perfectly about who Jesus is. She doesn't go to, to several conferences on the 10 ways to be an effective leader. She simply encounters Jesus, recognizes the authority of who he is, and immediately begins to serve him, and importantly, serve others around him. We'll see this play out again later in our scripture. As word has now spread about Jesus, we see a large number of people come to seek him out. 
Luke notes that the people come when the sun is setting. Now, why does he add that detail there? Well, since this is the Sabbath, and the legalism of following the Sabbath has been drilled into them by the Pharisees, they've been taught that they're, they're not allowed to carry a certain amount of weight or walk a certain distance on the Sabbath until the sun goes down. That marks the end of the Sabbath. So the people are waiting for the sun to go down, so now they can come to Jesus to perform these miracles. So Jesus here is freeing the people from the captivity of the law, binding them from taking care of one another as he continues to perform many miracles once the people show up. Jesus also casts out more demons, and Jesus again rebukes, but we see him do it for a different reason now. There are several times throughout Scripture where people acknowledge who Jesus is, namely that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah, and he tells them to be quiet and to tell no one. Now, you've maybe read these passages before and wondered, like, why would Jesus tell them to be quiet? Doesn't he want people to know who he really is? Isn't that the point of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and the entire book of Acts? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one that's never fully answered through Scripture. But what, what many scholars and Christians have concluded about the science of who Jesus actually is includes a couple different things. So the first thing is that Jesus doesn't want demons to be the chief testimony of who he is. There's going to be times when people are going to question whether Jesus is actually a demon himself because of the power he has to control them and and cast them out, that they submit to him. If the first place people hear that Jesus is actually the Son of God comes from demons, would the people believe that in a positive light? Think of it this way. If you knew someone whose word and character wasn't well-respected, Would you want them going around and being like, man, totally vouch for that guy? Probably not. Same thing. Like, I don't want that guy to vouch for me. In James 2.19, Jesus' younger brother, who will write his his book much later, uh, he talks about the fact that demons acknowledge and know who Jesus is. But it's one thing to know a fact and another thing to believe it and let that, like, change you. I might be able to say that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time because it's the widely held consensus, but I'll be honest, I'm not sure if I believe it. And if you want to message me later to have a conversation about who I think the greatest is, feel free to do so. Spoiler, not Kobe Bryant. Uh, Second reason Jesus doesn't want people saying he's the son of God right now is that the timing just isn't right. The Israelites have been waiting for Messiah for hundreds of years at this point. And in the time that this is taking place, the Romans are in control of the known world, including Israel, and the people are ready for a Messiah to show up, say, follow me, and lead them like William Wallace to freedom as a nation. But that's not what Jesus came to do. He's not a military leader. He's not a political figure. He came to serve by giving up his life as a ransom for our sins. And that's not what the people wanted, and it's ultimately why they kill him. Because Jesus professes that he is God, but he wasn't doing what they wanted God to do. So they said he must not actually be God. This is something else. This is heresy. He needs to be killed. The people were seeking an earthly nation, a place of standing in the world where everyone looked to them as the dominant powerhouse. But God's kingdom is not about being first. It's about being last. It's not about rising above everyone else, but serving the least. It's not about making your name known, but making Christ more famous. It's not about what you gain in this life, but what you receive in eternity. It's easy for us with with hindsight to look back at the people in Jesus' day and think, man, why did they miss it? How could they not see that this is what the Messiah was supposed to be when he came? Well, if you stop and think about it, 
have you or the church, capital C Church, or our country made Jesus into something that he's really not? How many times or how many wars have been fought in the name of Jesus? How many teams and athletes credit their success to God as if he actually cares about the outcome of a football game? How many Facebook posts have you seen claiming to be that this is what Jesus would have said or how he would have acted in this situation that maybe doesn't quite line up with the picture we see of him in the Gospels? Uh, I remember when I was a youth pastor in Kansas City a couple years ago, I was teaching the middle school youth group, and, and for some reason, I mentioned that Jesus wasn't a white guy with perfectly straightened brown hair and a, a well-trimmed beard and blue eyes. And you could see the look in one of the eighth grade boy's eyes as he had this dawning realization that Jesus is not who I thought he is. He actually wanted me to clarify because he thought I must have been joking when I said that. Nope. Our paintings of Jesus are what we interpret and want Jesus to be. Israel wanted Jesus to be a gladiator, not someone who heals on the Sabbath, who interacts with women and children, who goes to the leper, who takes on tax collectors as disciples and brings the message of peace and reconciliation to everyone, not just to the Jews. So what misconceptions have you placed on Jesus? Well, the people may not have understood exactly who Jesus was, but they knew they wanted him to stick around. I think it was because they, they knew his teaching was different. They're recognizing the authority. But I think it's similar to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It'll happen later in Jesus' ministry. They wanted more miracles, much like the people that got fed wanted another meal the next day. And Jesus takes this opportunity to clarify what his mission and purpose actually is. Let's uh, read verses 42 through 44 again. It says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The people may not have recognized exactly uh, who he was yet, but they were getting glimpses as he taught and rebuked demons and diseases. Jesus, though, he knew exactly who he was. And in these verses here, we see a succinct explanation of what Jesus has come to do. While part of his ministry involved uh, healing and casting out demons and other miracles, the real purpose of Christ is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God to all people. Uh, this is the first time that Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom of God, in Luke's gospel. He's going to use it 31 more times, though. This is a, a prominent theme of Jesus' teaching, as well as being uh, one of Jesus' most used phrases in the other gospels. So, but what, do, what does Jesus mean by this? What is the kingdom of God is what he's coming to preach me? Well, well, there's two things that Jesus will teach about the kingdom. The first is that the kingdom is already here. This doesn't mean that it has physical borders, how we might think of a country or a kingdom with a, a government or a king set up to run it. Uh, by the kingdom being present now, Jesus is announcing that he is the true king who's come to his people to bring freedom, as he declared last week when he was in Nazareth. The kingdom has been realized in this present reality in the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament promises and in the new covenant Jesus is going to bring about through his sacrificial death and resurrection. The kingdom is at hand as Jesus is about to call followers to spread this message of hope and reconciliation, not just to other towns, but to other countries, other people groups, and eventually every tribe, tongue, and nation. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we can become citizens 
citizens of God's kingdom, not through what we do or what we give to the king to earn, earn that honor, earn that citizenship, but by humbly submitting to his authority in our lives. At the same time, the kingdom is still to come. We who identify right now as followers of Christ are members of the kingdom, but if you look around the world, I think we can all recognize that this isn't quite the way that it's supposed to be. We've been indoors for three months as a pandemic has tragically killed hundreds of thousands of people around the world. We see protests around the country and the world as uh, those who have felt oppressed and marginalized are rising up to make their pain heard and calling for justice and change. We live in a place where untold numbers either have never heard the name of Jesus or they use his name more frequently as a cuss word. But one day that will change. One day, Jesus will come back in his full glory and power and will be the figure Israel was hoping for the first time that he came. He will right the wrongs of this world. He will give out justice to the oppressed and humble the proud. He will separate the wheat from the chaff and will bring to him those who have placed their trust in him. Eventually, the earth will be recreated to its original intent and a kingdom will literally be established with Jesus on the throne. Now, I don't know what that, when that day will be, but I do know is that in this present kingdom, as a citizen and follower of Christ, I am called, you are called to spread the good news of the kingdom from town to town to those all around us. Jesus came to Capernaum. He taught with authority, rebuked with authority, and clarified the authority of his purpose. Part of his purpose was actually to go away, to not stay Later in the Gospels, the, the disciples will tell Jesus he doesn't know what he's talking about when he says that he has to die and that he has to go away. But that was part of his mission too. He had to die. He had to go ascend back into heaven so that he could send his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, to guide us, to help us, to help uh, equip us, to power us to carry the message of the good news to the world. These verses in Luke 4 is the beginning of the mission that Luke will record as Jesus goes from town to town, and eventually his followers take the message all the way to the emperor in Rome by the end of the book of Acts. Nazareth didn't want to hear Jesus. Capernaum didn't want him to leave, but the plan was to go everywhere so that you can be listening, listening to me preach 2,000 years later in a town in Northwest Oregon. Like that, That's crazy. This is uh, the purpose of Jesus' life played out in front of you today just by us talking about him and his purpose. But Jesus wasn't going to do this mission alone. And that brings us to Luke 5, 1 through 11. I want to read that again too. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. That's, that's the Sea of Galilee. It's just a different name. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were wa washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knee, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. 
And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Well, in this last passage we'll study this morning, we'll see that uh, Simon Peter finally started to recognize who Jesus really is. Jesus again goes out to teach, and he uses uh, another model here that he'll use quite often. Is he uh, Because the crowds are getting so big, they're starting to press in on him. The only way people can see and hear him is for him to get on a boat and go out in the water. And also you get a nice little acoustic echoing effect there if you need a tip for the next time you're preaching at a lake. Uh, and he begins to preach with the same authority he was using in the synagogues. After teaching, Jesus tells Peter, whose boat he's using, to head out and go fishing. Now, while Jesus has been preaching with great authority and, and done some miracle, he's still just a carpenter, a brand new teacher on the scene, and uh, he's going to be telling a profes professional fisherman when and where to fish. Now, conditions were not right for good fishing, but Peter, having recognized the authority and power Jesus uh, has, he, he agrees to listen to him. And this small step of obedience will lead to a life transformed and a purpose gained. The fishing becomes so successful. It becomes an all-time great fishing story. I don't think this is an exaggeration of, well, my fish was this big. This is an actual miraculous fact. The boat overflows with fish and begins to sink. Peter calls out to his fishing buddies, James and John, to help. Still, nets are breaking. Fish are everywhere. Boats are struggling to stay afloat. In the midst of, I'm sure, the joy, excitement, surprise, and, and chaos of what's happening around them, Peter has an important revelation. This teacher and carpenter isn't some secret fishing genius. He's something else entirely. Peter knows what just happened isn't dumb luck or an incredible accident. This could only be an agent of God producing a catch like this in the middle of the day after nothing the night before. So Peter stops what he's doing, hauling in the greatest catch of his life to bow down before Jesus. This is the right response when you encounter the Lord. Notice Peter changes how he addresses Jesus from master to Lord. Uh, master carries the idea of a respected person, like calling someone sir. But Lord is acknowledging there's something divine about who was in front of him. Peter recognizes that he is in the presence of someone righteous and holy and that he is not that. His statement in verse 8 is similar to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he's in the throne room of God. Uh, or Abraham in Genesis 18 or Job in, in Job 42. All these instances of people realizing God is holy, we are not holy, I shouldn't be here right now. As one commentator puts it, it is the master whose orders must be obeyed, the Lord whose holiness caused moral agony to the sinner. Peter is convinced that a man of God would want nothing to do with an everyday sinner like him. Peter does not feel worthy of Jesus' blessing with the fish or even of knowing someone like him. He believes that, that God works with and uses only like the pure, the pious. It's too dangerous for a sinner like him to be in God's presence. Now, maybe you felt that way too. You've thought, man, what I've done is too bad. Jesus could never love me. He could never forgive me. How could he use someone like me? Can you think of times maybe where the holiness of God just overwhelmed you and you realized how far short you actually are of him? Or maybe you, you do recognize you're a sinner and that 
Jesus can overcome that, but you see others around you as too far gone. Jesus could save me, but that person? No way. Do you know what they did? They're way too bad. I think some people thought that about Peter. Peter was very much quick to speak, slow to listen. Uh, he was prideful. He thought he knew more than he did. He isn't the type of person you would expect the God of the universe to pick as the person he'd invest in more uh, and, and, or the most to further his kingdom. But that is who God picked. And he's willing to forgive and use any one of us everyday sinners as well. What Peter doesn't realize is that admitting one's failures and sin is the best practice to start for service, since then you can only depend on God. Peter's confession becomes his resume for service. Humility here is, is the key to spiritual greatness. Making less of yourself and more of Jesus is the only way that we can be saved. If we don't acknowledge our own sin, our own inability to save ourselves, then we'll never be in a place of recognizing and longing for the freedom that Jesus brings. To turn to Jesus, we must first turn from our sin. Now, that doesn't mean we need to, to get rid of all the sin in our lives before we can come to Jesus, because certainly Peter did not have enough time to do that in this moment in the boat. But it does mean that we admit our sin, our unrighteousness, and we recognize that it separated us from the holiness and goodness of God and that we, we don't deserve to be in his presence. When Peter proclaims his sinfulness to Jesus and tells him to go away, what does Jesus do? Well, he just stays right there. He doesn't start hammering Peter on all the horrible things he's done. He doesn't judge him and say, you're right, you are sinful and you do disgust me. No, Jesus stays with Peter and he even comforts him. Jesus, who is holy, identifies with Peter, who is sinful. Peter's face must have shown his astonishment and the dawning realization of who Jesus is because Jesus tells him not to fear. We have nothing to fear when we humbly come before Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where I've had a hard time telling Jesus that I'm struggling, uh, that I need forgiveness, I need his help. And I don't really know why I've had times that that's been hard. It's not like he doesn't already know what's going on inside of me. Have you ever held something back and then you feel that sense of relief, that weight being lifted off of you when you finally turn to the Lord? Peter admits who he is and receives comfort as a result. But that's not all he gets. He also gets a call. Jesus tells Peter, it's time to stop catching fish and it's time to start catching men. First of all, let me just say, fantastic turn of phrase, Jesus. Uh, I wonder if years down the road in ministry, Peter ever looked at Jesus like, that fisher of men thing, dude, that was brilliant because I used to be a fisher man, but now I'm a fisher of men. Knowing P I, I bet that happened. I could see Peter totally doing that. So anyways, not only is it a cool turn of phrase, but it's also a cool life change in purpose. No longer will Peter use nets to catch fish, which will eventually be killed and eaten. Instead, Peter will catch people and bring them to life. Boats and nets will no longer be tools of the trade, but God's word will be all they need. Jesus reverses a, a normally negative uh, figure and transforms it into a positive one, just as he is transforming Peter's role of service. For Jesus, only sinners who know they are sinners in need of help can enter his service. Rather than being unworthy, Peter is now ready to serve with him. 
We're told that along with Peter, James and John, and, and most likely Peter's brother Andrew, all go to shore, leave the greatest catch of their lives, and start following Jesus as his first disciples. When you, you read the account of Jesus calling Peter to follow him in Mark's gospel, it's really short. Jesus basically says, follow me, and Peter leaves everything and follows Jesus. But Luke gives us a little more context of why Peter is willing to leave it all behind right there. And consider this. This is the greatest day of Peter's professional life. Two boats sinking from one cast of a net would be a legendary story that would be told for years to come in this region. And yet, Peter gives it all up. So the question for us to consider is, what would make you leave behind your livelihood on the greatest day of your profession? If, is Jesus asking you to, to serve him enough to do that? Or would you need something more than just Jesus saying, hey, come and follow me? Are you willing to give up a promotion at work if it means having more free time to serve at church? Are you willing to give up that, that extra vacation or, or the speedboat at the lake if it means giving more to feed orphans in need? What would it take for you to, to give up your status in this world, your, your possessions in this world, your money, your job, your friends, or your family if you had to, to follow Jesus completely? Uh, when Taylor and I were dating and we were starting to talk about marriage being a realistic uh, possibility, spoiler, it was very realistic, uh, we had to have a hard conversation about God's call on both of our lives. I had already felt uh, called to youth ministry since I was 17. Specifically, I felt like I was called to serve students in the Northwest. And uh, we had both recently come back from a mission trip to Tanzania, Africa. It was our second time there. And Taylor had fallen in love with the place and the people and felt like God might be calling her to serve there more. I also love Tanzania, but I knew that that wasn't my calling. So it was tough. I love Taylor, but we knew that we couldn't place our love for each other over God's calling in our lives. So we began to pray if, if we needed to break up before we were going to deal with a crisis down the road of not doing what it was that God had actually called us to do. Now, ultimately, Taylor felt like she was called to Tanzania, but, but just not full time. And, and since then, we've gone back once, and I know we'll go back again in the future, hopefully multiple times, uh, and we were able to work that out. But she and I were both willing to give up our love for each other, our relationship, our future marriage, our blessing of our daughter Olivia, if it was getting in the way of what Christ's purpose was for each one of our lives. As we look at this story in Luke, I hope that you understand that when you recognize Jesus for who he really is, for his authority and his power, for his mission to proclaim the good news and for his purpose to draw others to his purpose, I hope that you are willing to lay down whatever it is in your life that is holding you back from bowing down to him, acknowledging who he is, and following wherever he asks you to go. Let's pray together. God, I, I uh, thank you for this day. I thank you for um, your good word. Thank you for uh, the authority and power with which you speak is the same authority you give us to go out and fulfill uh, your purpose in the world as well. God, I don't know uh, where everybody's at who's hearing this message today. There might be some who are identifying with Peter and feeling like they're too sinful to be in the presence of you. Uh, I pray that uh, they just would feel you coming to them to, to, to rescue them, to love them, that 
There's, there's no being too far gone for you that what you've done to pay for our sins is done and over. And all we need to do is turn away from that and turn to you. God, there might be others who are struggling with um, how to be used by you in the world. Maybe there's uh, like a real calling in some people's lives and they're finding excuses like I already tried to fish there yesterday or that's going to be too difficult or I, I can't give this up. Uh, God, I pray that they would recognize who you really are, um, how the greatest fulfillment we get in life comes from doing what you ask of us, of, of dropping everything and following you, and that those people would just jump in with courage and faith that you'll be alongside them. Uh, God, I, I just thank you for this weekend. I thank you for um, the friends and family we have, as I'm sure people are doing some celebrating together this weekend. God, I pray that even though we're separated as a church right now, we continue to lift up one another's burdens, we continue to care for one another, and we continue to see how we can make an impact in our community and world around us. I pray these things through Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me leave you with uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 is our benediction passage this morning. Um, a lot of times when we talk about calling, God's calling for our lives, uh, I feel like people think that, well, like being called to full-time ministry, that means being called. Well, that is a calling, but that's not the only way God calls us. In fact, it's not just preachers that are called to proclaim the gospel. It's actually something that's for everybody. And I want to read that uh, to us today from Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot of we's and us's in that passage. You are a minister of the gospel, a minister of reconciliation. You are an ambassador for Christ. Go out and be that this week.